hauling Just look at the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. It's great to have you with us. On this episode, we hear how John Deere and its dealer AHW LLC are working to address the ag equipment technician shortage. We also hear about Growmark's essay contest for some FFA students in the Midwest. Our buddy Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer, brings us another installment of Bushels and Scents. And we hear the music of bluegrass and traditional country music star Alicia Nugent, whose new album, The Old Side of Town, was released this week. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, first up this week on the program, a little over a year ago, we talked with Grant Surrey, the director for Region 4 Customer and Product Support for John Deere, to talk about the launch of the Manufacturer's Technician Recruitment, Training, and Retention Program, which is backed by a U.S. Department of Labor grant. We wanted to bring him back to give us a status report on the Registered Apprentice Program, as well as other John Deere Technician Recruitment Programs, as the search for technicians continues to be an ongoing challenge. Grant, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thanks for having me, Brent. Glad to be here. Well, I know trying to recruit and retain technicians is a constantly moving target for all ag equipment manufacturers. Tell me about some of the programs John Deere has put into place to build the technician workforce. The uh, the approach we've taken has been pretty uh, broad, and we have dedicated JD Tech programs that are tailored to John Deere dealers specifically that uh, that provide an associate's degree level education for technicians and and. Uh, folks can sign up for for those programs through the dealers in coordination with those uh, specific community college programs. We've got more than 20 of those programs across U.S. and Canada, and that covers both Ag and Turf and CNF. Uh, we we also work with local community colleges to source trained and skilled uh, workers to come into the dealerships. And what's really exciting is recently we've set up a career skills program and, and Department of Defense skill bridge program that allows us to run internships with with uh, service members that are about to depart the military and move into the civilian world for uh, for a career. And uh, we can provide technical training while the, the soldiers and sailors and airmen are still on the uh, active duty roles and uh, can, can learn about Deer technology and uh, and come come through uh, that and start a, a new career coming out of the military. So that's really exciting. And obviously, we recruit uh, across the market with mid career hires as well. So a real real broad based approach we've taken to uh, try and make sure we've got enough technicians to take care of customers. From where you sit, what makes a good technician? Uh, good good technicians for us are are very uh, skilled. We we have high technology products now, machines that have automation, can steer themselves, can communicate with telematics back to uh, the dealership and back to deer. And uh, with with those type of controls, we need we need very uh, skilled diagnosticians, and you know certainly with the level of uh, mechanical skill to to affect repairs, and then uh, uh, also folks that have a good work ethic and and want to. Uh, 
join the team and, and get after it. As you know, planting season and harvest season can be quite uh, a rush to get in the, the window of opportunity that a farmer has to get in the field. And, uh, and that, that strong work ethic is really important to us as well. And some of these programs are earned to learn, meaning the students get on-the-job training and also get a paycheck while they build their skills. Sure. The, uh, with, with the military program, that, that's one where they are learning uh, while they're out on active duty. And then when they get to the dealer, they will uh, uh, work and, and learn through the John Deere University process. And then our J.D. Tech program, that, that is a, uh, a full-time student process along with an internship. So, so they'll have a relationship with the dealer while they're going to school. And they will do uh, a summer internship and, and also potentially work on weekends or, or holidays, things like that. So, so several ways that they can, can uh, work and learn at the same time. So I know a model that's been successful for John Deere is bringing in interns and pairing them with seasoned technicians. Why is that an important strategy? The process of diagnosing and repairing very complex equipment is, is a learned skill. And to, to learn that on your own, it would take a, a long time and a, a bit of a trial and error method. Having, having a mentor, a, uh, a journeyman technician, so to speak, uh, is, is a very good way to accelerate uh, that learning and ensure that uh, downtime is reduced and and the, uh, the jobs get done quickly and and uh, correctly. So so that's an important technique to use uh, in an apprenticeship type approach that, that has been used for a long time. Have have that uh, very skilled person mentor and and uh, train the uh, the new person that's starting that that. Well, we had you on the program last time we talked about the registered apprentice program. How is that program performing and what kind of response have you gotten from, from some of the groups such as workforce investment boards or uh, some of the K-12 schools or, or labor unions or anybody else that uh, you've worked with on that? Sure. So so that apprenticeship program, the, the certified uh, program has been a good tool for us to to provide that uh, specific certification and qualification in the markets that it matters in. And uh, it is certainly a uh, plus and has proven to be valuable as, as we've uh, brought people in through the different pipelines to come into the trade. So, so it's been, been a, good, uh, a good investment for us. Uh, what kind of work has uh, John Deere Corporate done with the dealers to make sure that they are aware of all the resources that are available to them uh, when they are looking to recruit? We have uh, certainly posted the information out on uh, the John Deere website. So, so there are career program uh, topics that are available for anybody to find and also link to the dealer Career opportunities. We, we've got a, uh, a web-based tool that gives those uh, job listings there, and then through our field team and through our normal bulletins and, and uh, meetings, things like that, we share any of the updates to uh, any of the technician career plans that we have, and, and as we update them. What are the biggest challenges that dealerships run into when trying to recruit and retain uh, qualified technicians? The biggest challenge is it's very competitive. So with all of the industries that uh, need 
skilled technicians. We, you know, we have to certainly provide the the work environment of choice, and so the dealers work to, to provide that uh, and be the be the employer of choice when it comes to a skilled trades job. And uh, we we also have tried to make sure that the uh, the resources are available so that the technicians can be successful uh, as they come into a role with the John Deere dealer. And uh, that's probably the biggest challenge is just the competitiveness of the market right now for skilled trades. And if you had to give your best sales pitch for why service technician is a good career, what would it be? I would say that we have a very relevant job that, that grows food and builds the infrastructure that, that people need here in uh, America and Canada and around the world and that we, uh, we offer that, that essential role. And, and with the pandemic having happened, we, uh, we know that that has been a uh, source of employment that has been uninterrupted and highly regarded across the industry and uh, certainly a job you can count on being there as you work through your career. Well, you bring up a good point with the pandemic. Have there been any specific challenges that dealers have faced in terms of trying to recruit uh, employees or uh, onboard them during all this? Grant, it has been a challenge. One thing that the dealers have found with recruiting is that uh, not being able to do it face to face is is a bit of a task now, and they've done things like uh, oh, Facebook live streaming with with candidates to show them their facilities, and using other uh, networking tools, Zoom or or Teams or those sorts of uh, tools where you can do face to face over the internet with people to uh, to interview them and let them get to know you as well. The other thing that we've found challenging is as you're aware, skilled trades training is a very hands-on proposition, right? Mm-hmm. You have to take an engine apart or a transmission apart and put it back together to learn how to do it. So through the, the cooperation with our JD Tech program schools and other schools, the dealers have worked to enable students to do some of their lab work in their shops, in their service shops, so that we can maintain a, a safe and socially distanced environment but also enable the, uh, the students to have access to the equipment and the tools to actually get that practical experience. So, so it's been a challenge. It certainly has been a challenge, but uh, we've actually met it quite, quite well, quite effectively. Well, Grant, if anyone listening to this has ever entertained the idea of becoming a service technician and they might want more information on the opportunities available with John Deere and its dealers, where can they go? Brent, they, they can go to deer.com, the, the John Deere public website that's available to everyone. And they would go to the Our Company section and look for careers, the careers tab. And if they click on that careers tab, it'll take them to the host of information we have around uh, both John Deere careers as well as John Deere dealer careers. And specifically, there's a dealer technician training link where they can learn about opportunities to get, get trained, get the skills needed to be successful as a John Deere technician. And then there's a dealership opportunities tab that will allow them to search by location around the country to see if there are uh, jobs that fit their skill set and that would interest them and can uh, then go 
that links them to the dealer's website to give them the job description and what that opportunity is. So, so it's all right there at your, uh, the click of your mouse on the John Deere website. Well, I tell you what, it's always fascinating to find out the things that you guys are doing to stay on top of this here. And Grant, we sure do appreciate you coming back to the program to break all this down for us. Very good. Thanks for having me, Brent. And now we want to bring in Morgan Hesters, the HR generalist for AHW LLC. They're a 16-store John Deere dealership in East Central Illinois and West Central Indiana. And they have experienced this tech shortage and need for qualified technicians firsthand. And Morgan, welcome in to Fastline Fast Track. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So this is something that you guys have been grappling with for some time now, the, the need for techs. Tell, tell us about, in your region, what that need looks like. Sure. So um, in recent years, uh, John Deere Corporate has challenged the dealers to hire um, at least two full-time technicians per, per location. Um, and anybody in the industry knows that that's a, that's a, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a good goal. Um, it's challenging, but it's a good goal. Um, and we've just, you know, we've struggled with it a little bit, but with the help of um, some different recruiting uh, avenues and the John Deere Tech School partnerships, we've kind of been able to meet the goal to some extent, not at every location, but we're, we're working on it. So from where you sit, what are some of the challenges that dealerships face in terms of finding qualified employees and then retaining them? Yeah, so some of the challenges um, with finding them can be, you know, the general interest um, in that type of work, um, skilled trades in general, um, smaller smaller job pools. So there are various different things in these communities um, throughout Indiana and Illinois that we struggle with, but we have been able to partner with area high schools and different things to get some interest with the high schools. We find that it's a little bit better if we start younger um, to get the kids involved and, you know, on-site visits, um, try and go and reach out to the classrooms as much as possible and different things like that. When talking to a number of dealers around the country, I understand one of the big problems is that once you've invested the time and the money into a good technician and they become proficient, then you have to work harder to retain them because everybody else finds out about them and they want to steal them out from under you. Sure. Um, that's a problem that we do deal with, but um, it's a, it can be a selling point to young folks who want to go into this career field, too, um, just as much as it's a challenge that we deal with as dealers um, when we have experienced technicians. Um, it should show, you know, when you're trying to recruit young people that this is a well-sought-after role and job and um encouraging the skilled trades and encouraging diesel programs, encouraging auto tech programs, welding, uh, vocational programs, work-based learning programs in these high schools um, to, you know, get them interested in these types of roles. Because like you mentioned, people in the area know who the great technicians are. Um, we know in our areas who is the next dealership over who their good techs are. Does it matter the color? The customers know that too, and the customers follow them. So it can be a selling point, and then, but as a challenge for the dealerships, we have to make sure that we're doing right by the technician and making sure that we can retain them as well. And we try and make sure that we, our pay, our hourly rates are, um, are in line with the industry and in line with the areas. 
Um, we try and make sure that there are, we have a technician performance bonus program. We have to make sure that our time off benefits and our insurance benefits and 401k, all of those things are competitive because these are well sought after positions uh, when they're, when they're very, I mean, very difficult work and these guys have worked very, very hard to make sure that they are very good at what they do. So we've got to do our part to make sure that we can keep them on board with us. Well, another challenge that you run into is that a lot of these technicians actually grew up themselves on farms, and now you're seeing this generational transition uh, on many farms, and it seems like there's a pull for a lot of them to maybe get out of the trade and and get back on the farm. Absolutely, we do, and there is – there's always that interest for, you know, the farm kids who want to work at the dealership and want to work and learn more about the diesel technician side of things so they can bring that value back home. And I fully understand that. And we have had technicians that, that do that and they're, they turn into wonderful customers. And so you kind of have to take that as a reality check, um, something that we have to know going into it and realize that there's benefits on both sides of it. Um, and then also, too, trying to get um, interest outside of just kids that grew up on farms. There, we've had wonderful, wonderful experiences with, with guys that don't have any farm background. Um, and they, they have enjoyed and loved the challenge of learning more about the equipment. And they had the, the diesel interest but never grew up on a farm and they took off as well and so it's been it's a good balance um to have farm background but also have the interest outside of the industry because the, the more folks that are going to be interested in the ag industry as a whole is only going to make everything better so well the industry here over the past few years has really built a, a huge reputation for innovation and technology plays a huge role in this equipment. How do you guys go about conveying the message that this is more than just a grease monkey job, that, that it's a highly skilled job, and uh, when you get into it, there, there's a lot of work with, with computers, and uh, you really have to be on your game, and it's not just turning wrenches. Absolutely, and part of the presentation when I, when I talk with different classes or a classroom comes on site for a tour of the dealership, one of the questions I asked the group right off the bat is what tool do you think is the most important for these technicians? And you'll have, you know, kids yelling out different tools and it's kind of nice to be able to say, you know, their laptops are actually their most important tool. Um, We have to have the support at the dealership level to make sure that we can support all of these, all of these technicians with all of these laptops who, you know, who go through, a lot of work and using the technology that we have from Deer that we've decided to utilize as a dealership as well um, to do, you know, electronic inspections to all of the diagnostics are through the computer. Um, and it's just a huge, huge piece. And that doesn't even touch on any of the, the precision training and, and, all of the things that are just a huge technology focus for dear corporate in general, but for a technician specific answer, um, you know, the laptop is your most important tool because that is where you, you start and end your day. You've got to start by, you know, working on your work orders. You've got to start by diagnosing the issue 
you can work through you know service advisor and then you've got to you got to close out your day with it you got to make your notes and and write up your work orders and send them back to your service manager and on to the next one so it's a huge piece of their day and it's not a dingy shop you know sometimes you a lot of times you need to go on out on site um you know work in your truck and it's in and we try and make sure our facilities are you know the, the grease monkey dark dirty you know stereotypical shops anyway um it happens but we try and make take very good care and make sure that we have really good work environments for our technicians so we can kind of beat that stigma so one of the strategies that you guys have employed to try to recruit and retain uh, qualified technicians is to uh, partner up with Lakeland College in Mattoon, Illinois, to create hands-on opportunities for students uh, to to really get a behind-the-scenes look and get their hands dirty a bit. Yes, absolutely. So we have had wonderful luck, um, and we're really fortunate to be in an area where we have a school, a John Deere technician um, school with Lakeland College, right kind of smack dab in the middle of our of our area. Uh, plus, we've got other schools that are very close to with Vincent's uh, University over in Indiana as well that has the John Deere Tech program. And we have we love utilizing that program. We think it's wonderful. We've made an investment in that program with offering different tool assistance programs, different tuition assistance programs. Um, and we're just excited to kind of start talking about different promotions that we have, you know, if you're on the beans list or um, and, and making sure that we're paying our interns competitively as well. Um, and so we've really liked utilizing that program. And a lot of times we try and get students interested in the program when they're juniors and seniors at high school. And we've actually, you know, built that relationship early on, even before they step foot on their, you know, on Lakeland's campus their freshman year. So we've been, we've been able to really utilize that, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful program for us. And another strategy that AHW uses is targeting folks who are looking for a mid-level career change. I understand John Deere offers an accelerated tech program uh, that can bring folks up to speed pretty quickly. Absolutely. So Deere has brought in this program, and it's called, like you said, the Accelerated Tech Program. And it's for folks who maybe don't want to go to college or, or don't. It's a mid-level career change. They don't want to go back to college. And it's basically a two-week crash course. Um, where you go on site, you learn, and you may have existing diesel experience. You might have not any, you know, ag-specific experience, but the fundamentals of, of, you know, the diesel industry is your background. This would be an awesome opportunity where you do online training, and then you go and spend two weeks in a classroom and kind of, like I said, get the, the crash course version and try and cram all as much information as we can and the the students who have gone through it and the technicians who have gone through it with with us have have really enjoyed the experience just because they get a broad range of information and it is all kind of concise and jam-packed in those two weeks so it's a lot of info but it's a it's a it's a good good program for those mid-level career changes well, I think a lot of employment retention studies have shown that uh, employees stay engaged when they stay challenged and uh, their, their employer invests in them with continuing education. And that's something that AHW has really focused on. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we try and really focus on 
um, because you're right, making ensure the employees know that their continuing education is important to AHW is um, it is important to to them too on a personal note. So we try and really make sure that we invest in training. We do a lot of um, JDU training where it's online, flood-based. Unfortunately, with COVID, we've had to kind of dial back the uh, option for classroom training. But in the past, you know, during off-season, we try and get as many technicians as we can into those classes so that they can get hands-on training. Um, we all know that there's different learning styles, and so that's what's nice about John Deere University and those classes is you have both options. You have the web classes, you have a classroom option, and then you have labs where you actually get to be hands-on working on different training and doing different diagnostics um, on site with, with corporate deer instructors. So it's a, it's a really great opportunity for us to continue to invest and continue that education piece with our current employees. And Morgan, thank you so much for breaking all of this down for us. If folks are listening to this and they may be interested in a career change or a first career in exploring options, where can they find out more about employment opportunities available at AHW? Our recruiting website is ahwjobs.com. We post all of our postings there. We also have the general application posting. So even if folks don't see a position right now that they want, um, we, we save all of those applications and we can flag them and put them in categories and same thing with the John Deere tech and ag tech application that's listed there. Those are postings that are always up for us. Well, Morgan, we surely appreciate you coming on fast line, fast track to talk about all this. And I hope that we can uh, reconvene here in the future and uh, get some great updates about some of the new advances and uh, uh, that, that you'll get all the techs you need. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And again, we've been talking with Morgan Hester, an HR generalist with AHW LLC. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, Growmark, an agricultural cooperative with operations in the lower 48 states and parts of Canada, has announced the theme of its 2021 essay contest, which is open to all high school FFA members in Illinois, Iowa, Michigan, Missouri, Ohio, and Wisconsin. So I wanted to bring in Karen Jones, a youth and young producer specialist with Growmark, to talk about it. Karen, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you, Brent. Glad to be here. Well, this is the 28th year for the contest, and this year the mission is to describe a problem within the agriculture industry and a creative way to provide a solution. Students are encouraged to be creative with their ideas, whether or not the solution is currently possible. So Karen, how did Growmark arrive at this topic? So we we change our topic every year and we always look for something that would be um, kind of a current issue in agriculture. And that has ranged over the years from biotechnology to renewable fuels to careers in the industry to cooperatives. And this year with everything going on in the world, you know, we we could have gone with kind of the obvious, um, you know, what what has changed in agriculture as a result of the, the pandemic. But we wanted to be a little more um, a little more open with the topic this year, so we decided to just ask students to talk about a problem, and if they want to go that direction, they certainly can, but if they want to, to tackle something else that's going on in the industry, we'd love to hear any and all creative ideas. Now, I mentioned this is the 28th year for it. Uh, take me back to the beginning. Why was this contest started? So when this contest was started, um, it was before I was working with it, but it was started because uh, we saw a need for 
for improved writing skills in students. And we had heard from from our um, education connections that that was an area that they wanted a way to uh, to improve their students' writing and to, to give them a reason to write more in class. And so we kind of worked together and came up with the idea for this essay contest. And um, a lot of teachers will assign it as part of, of class. It might be, you know, the topic for the week or an extra credit assignment or something. And so it gives the students a reason to write something maybe above and beyond what they'd be writing in their normal English classes. Um, and then also a chance, you know, for them to win uh, to win a prize and, and a plaque and everything from us, too. And as those essays roll in every year, are you surprised by the creativity of those entries and the students who submit them? We really are. I, I have a team um, at Growmark that judges the essays of, of coworkers and peers, and it's always fun because we start passing them around, and, and then, you know, a few days later we'll say, did you read this one? Did you see that one? This one was so good. This one was really neat. And it is. It's, it's really exciting to me to see the ideas that the students come up with. And, and of course, they're different every year because the topics change. But we always seem to find really good ones that, that float to the top. So from all those, have there ever been any of them that uh, you've been able to put into any kind of an actionable plan? So most of ours um, this year is really the first time that I can remember we've actually asked them to provide any kind of solution so we're not necessarily looking for a plan every year, but definitely um, been able to take away some things, especially in the the careers area and, you know, some of the ways that we've asked them to describe how they would like to be partnering with co-ops that we've worked into our young producer programming, um, some ideas that we hadn't thought of, of, of things that might catch their attention or, or be helpful to them as they're starting their careers. So if students are interested, how can they submit entries? So uh, entries are submitted online. Um, it's a pretty easy process. There's a, a website um, that you can link to from growmark.com. It should be um, very easy to find on our website. And then you just fill out a simple form, a little bit of background information, your address and phone number, things like that. And then there's a place where you can either copy and paste your essay, which is what we recommend so that you can do your spell checking and all that good stuff. Um, but you can type directly into the form as well. And then you just hit submit and then that's all you have to do. And the deadline is midnight central time on November 6th, 2020. And additional program details have been sent, I understand, to ag teachers in those states and can be found online at growmark.com. Tell us about what they win. So in each state, we select the top five essays and the top student in the state wins $500 and their chapter wins $300. So um, not only are they helping themselves, they're also helping their fellow FFA members. And then we choose four additional runners up and those students each receive $125. Well, this is definitely an exciting program. And again, if you have questions, uh, see your ag teacher, go to growmark.com and Karen, we sure do appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track, and we wish all the participants the best of luck, and I hope you'll come back and share with us the results here once you've chosen some winners. I would love to be able to do that. We'll have a winner selected by Christmas, and so we'll, we'll make that announcement sometime in December, and then, yeah, I'd love to come back and, and share some of the essays that floated to the top. And again, we've been talking with Karen Jones, the Youth and Young Producer Specialist with Growmark.
And next up, it's time for another installment of Bushels and Cents with our buddy, the Hot Rod Farmer, Ray Bohax. Don't forget, you can check out all his great multimedia content at FarmMachineryDigest.com. Welcome to Bushels and Cents, a weekly podcast from the Farm Machinery Digest. I am your host, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer. And never forget, it is not what you make, but what you keep that counts. The battery in your planter tractor is about five years old, but it works fine. You're in the middle of a 1,000-acre field, three miles from the home farm. You shut the engine off to eat lunch. When you try to start it again, nothing. The entire electrical system is dead. The battery, due to its age, suffered sudden death syndrome. The bus bar that ties the cells together broke internally. If you would have low-tested the battery over the winter, you would have found the problem. You lost a complete day getting a new battery to the field and did not plant. The next five days it rained, and now you are seven days beyond the optimum planting date, costing you 3.5 bushels per acre on 1,000 acres or $12,250. That just became a $12,000 battery. Visit FarmMachineryDigest.com where steel and soil meet. Again, don't forget to check out all Ray's great content at FarmMachineryDigest.com and come back each week for more helpful tips on bushels and scents. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, if you stand at the intersection of bluegrass and traditional country music, that's where you'll find this week's special guest, Alicia Nugent. She's taken a 10-year hiatus from recording, but is back with some incredible new work that we can't wait to share with you. Alicia, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you, Brent. So happy to be here and be a part of this. You've got a new album out the old side of town which is going to be coming out next friday september the 18th and from what i've heard of it it's just amazing so congratulations on getting this project out thank you i'm really excited about it thanks a lot and we also want to say howdy to another special guest accompanying alicia tonight is lance derry who's played guitar with randy travis and also patty loveless and has been in the the nashville area for a good uh, 30 years and uh, is, is one of the best uh, in the business here. So we're excited uh, to have Lance with you. So before we talk about the new album tonight, let's back up a bit here and talk about your roots because there isn't much in music that's more important than your roots. You grew up in Hickory Grove, Louisiana. And uh, from what I understand, we're surrounded by music from the start. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up in church. My mom played piano in church. And uh, so we were always singing uh, special music there around the piano. And then my dad started his bluegrass band the year that I was born. And uh, so he was always gigging, playing bluegrass festivals. So uh, when we weren't doing the bluegrass festivals or singing in church, uh, mom always had the classic country uh stereo going in the house, you know, when she was cleaning or whatever else, you know, and uh, picking parties at the house all the time. So I was always around music. And who were some of your earlier influences? Well, uh, I mean, my, my dad was my biggest influence just because he sang all these songs, all these old bluegrass and gospel songs that I didn't necessarily know who the original artist was. But then uh, I'd have to say Merle Haggard, Bern Gosden, uh, Ray Price, uh, Reba, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Reba fan, uh, Patty Loveless, um, just to name a few. So at, at around age 16, uh, you, you got involved in, in doing some singing here as the, uh, the lead singer of the Southland Bluegrass Band. I did. Actually, at the age of 15, I joined uh, my dad's band. 
when their lead singer quit. And uh, I was already making, you know, small appearances, getting up on stage, singing Daddy's Hands. Started doing that probably when I was 12. And um, he decided whenever the other lead singer quit to ask me to join. And uh, that's where it all started. I understand you also have some musical grandfathers as well. I did. Both of my granddads were song directors in church. And then as as far as you were talking about the uh, the bluegrass festivals, uh, you guys are still involved uh, with one that's uh, pretty prominent. Yes. Um, they're in my backyard, basically, where I grew up uh, in Hickory Grove or DeVille, Louisiana. We've been having a bluegrass festival there called the Hickory Grove Music Park for about 40 years. Uh, this year would have been 41 and we, we had to cancel. So, um, yeah, long time going. Who are some of the artists who have uh, been on stage there that uh, folks might recognize? Uh, well, Rhonda Vincent was there with the Sally Mountain Show, you know, back when she was playing with her family band. Um, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver have been there. Uh, Russell Moore and Third Time Out. Um, the Bluegrass Cardinals were there uh, years ago. Uh, the Lewis family, uh, you know, so many more. So I tell you what, before we move any farther in the show, I want to get uh, this thing started off with some music. Do you have one for us you could play for us? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to start off with a good old country shuffle, uh, one that's on the record. Uh, I think this is a great Texas song. So it's called Tell Fort Worth I Said Hello. Star State. I've got some real good memories of that place. I left a real fine cowboy there when I rode away. So please do me a favor when you get back out that way. Tell Fort Worth I said hello. Say you met someone in Tennessee, a girl he used to know. That town in him those times back when, just won't let me go. So when you get back to Texas, tell Fort Worth I said hello. in Oak Town. Someday that's where I'd love to settle down. He won't be all that hard to find if you just ask around. I'm sure that he's still playing in that same old Texas lounge. Tell Fort Worth I said hello. Say you met someone in Tennessee, the girl he used to know. That town in him, those 
just won't let me go. So when you get back to Texas, tell Fort Worth I said hello. That town in him, those times back when, just won't let me go. So when you get back to Texas, tell Fort Worth I said hello. So when you get back to Texas, tell Fort Worth I said hello. Excellent. Well, hello to Fort Worth and everybody hello, else Fort out Texas. there. Can't wait to get back out to Billy Bob's again. And uh, I know, right? <laughs> so tell me a bit about how you make it from Louisiana to Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, begin this journey. <laughs> well, my first stint in Nashville was actually from 02 to 09. Um, you know, I first came to Nashville to record my very first bluegrass CD. Uh, came up here in 2000 and uh, self-released it in 2001. Uh, then Rounder picked it up in 2002 and decided to re-release it in 04. So uh, in 2002, I made the move, I guess, right after I signed with Rounder and uh, just trying to get everything together, the band and everything, getting ready for the record release and put out three records on Rounder uh, in the bluegrass genre, of course, and uh, traveled all over. Uh, got to see some really cool places, uh, love to travel abroad as well as, you know, here in the States. And in 09, I went back to Louisiana so that I could, uh, finish taking care of my family. You know, I had three daughters, have three daughters and they were in like middle school at that time. So, uh, I went back home so that I could finish raising them and come off the road. And uh, I was hoping at the time that I, that I went back, I was going to be able to still do the music a little bit, just, you know, slow down a little bit, I guess. And that was kind of hard to do um, as a single mom. So uh, once I started working a full-time job, you know, it was hard to go and play music. So um, then my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2012 and we lost him in 2013. And at that time, I really didn't think that I would be able to make it back to the music scene at all. Um, but lo and behold, when my youngest daughter uh, graduated high school and was getting ready to go off to college and she leaves the nest, I find myself an empty nester all of a sudden. And I'm like, what am I gonna do now? <laughs> So uh, in 2017, I decided to come back to Nashville and see if there was anything left of my music career. <laughs> yeah. It appears that there is. <laughs> yes. Uh, hoping to get back out there and play some live music again soon. Well, the music has been widely acclaimed. You were named the Society for the Preservation of Bluegrass Music of America Female Vocalist of the Year in 2007, 8, 10, and 11. And uh, the IBMA album of the year for your work on the Musicians Against Childhood Cancer Project. So that, that had to have been uh, quite a thrill and, and some validation there for you as well. Yeah, yeah. It feels really nice to be uh, accepted by your peers in, in those things. Yeah, appreciate that. And I know that's nothing that, that, that you necessarily set out to do. You just want to make music and, and live out your passion. But, but uh, it's awful nice along the way, isn't it? Yes, it is. 
So another one of the most thrilling things that you had a chance to do is uh, play the Grand Ole Opry. And since 2004, you've been on the stage there in that hallowed circle 71 times. Yes. And uh, I understand that all came from a, a chance meeting with the former GM, Pete Fisher. Tell me about that. Yes, you've done your homework. Um, actually, I was uh, backstage with uh, a good friend of mine, Ann Sawyers, um, she had connections, you know, to be able to get backstage of the Opry back in those days. And we were uh, walking around and I happened to have the new CD, the very first one that I did, had it in my uh, purse. And of course, as I'm going through the hallway, I uh, run into Pete, Fish Pete Fisher, sorry, and started talking to him and I handed him the CD and uh, he starts looking at it. Of course, the first thing he looks at on the back is he wanted to see who produced it. And he saw that Carl Jackson produced it. And that was not long after Carl had won a Grammy for the Leuven Brothers uh, project. So uh, he commented on the fact that Carl, you know, won the Grammy and how he he loved, you know, Carl's work. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from my management saying the Grand Ole Opry is inviting you to be a guest on the on the Grand Ole Opry, and what a what a dream come true! That was that was pretty sweet. What was that first time on the stage like? Uh, well, so many emotions. You know, it was it was happy. It was. Uh, I mean, I was nervous. I was so scared, but so thrilled at the same time. You know, and looking back, I think when you're that excited about something, you know that. It, some of it you can't even remember when you go back. It's like, it just, it just all happens so fast. And then it's like, I don't even remember because I was, I guess I was just kind of in that anxiety moment, you know, but the best part of it all was uh, the fact that I had my dad there with me and I was able to call my dad to come out on stage and uh, sing harmony with me and with Carl Jackson on my debut on the Grand Ole Opry. That was, that was pretty sweet. An experience that had to have been. Yeah, it was. My dad was just as nervous, probably more nervous than I was. <laughs> I can imagine, you know, from the, the beginnings of, of his own band to, to being out there, that had to have been quite a thrill for him. Yes, it was. So as glamorous as the music business is, you know, most, uh, a lot of people probably don't realize this, but a lot of uh, bluegrass artists and other independent musicians wind up having to take another job to support themselves. And that's uh, uh, something you've had to do at various times. And uh, along the way, about the time that uh, you had done the Opry, uh, you struck up a, a friendship or a relationship uh, with, with uh, one of my favorites, the storyteller, Tom T. Hall. That's and right. wound up going to work for, for Tom and his wife, Dixie. And yeah. that really became a part of the family. What was that like? That was quite an experience. You know, they uh, they really took me in and, you know, were just great mentors. And, uh, you know, Tom T even like in the beginning, you know, he he kept sitting me down at the piano every now and then, you know, teaching me music theory or or, um, you know, trying to teach me on the guitar. And uh, Dixie, you know, was just. She was awesome. I mean, she she taught me a lot of my cooking uh, that I know today. Uh, she taught me in the kitchen. So um, it was it was a great experience. You know, I loved every minute of the time that I had with them. And I still get to go out there now and then. Tom T will will call me when he has a special project that he needs 
taken care of and he'll say, I know who to call. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's nice to have uh, the support from someone like Tom T and, and the late Miss Dixie. Well, I tell you, as I was preparing for this today, I threw on a little bit of your music and uh, I cried all the way to Kentucky came up and, uh, you know, I didn't realize he had written that song, uh, he and Dixie. And, and and then I went back and looked at that and I said, ah, that, that makes sense. That, that yes. sounds like a Tom T. Hall cut. Yes, it does. Yes. <laughs> Love their That's music. Such a great song. And you talk about uh, having folks like that in your corner uh, in your career. You've also had a chance to work with folks uh, like Alison Krauss and also Dolly Parton. You've had a chance to sing uh, harmony on some of her music. And as I was going back and looking at some stuff, uh, I, I saw a nice note that she shared with you uh, around the time that yeah. you had, had done some session work with her. Yeah, I, I got to go in and through Carl Jackson, you know, she had called her producer, had called Carl and asked, uh, him for some harmony work. And of course she wanted uh, a female singer and he had the choice of picking someone to come in and sing harmony with him. And so Carl called me and we, we went in there that day and I actually didn't expect to meet Dolly because typically the artist does their stuff, you know, when we come in and do overdubs, you know, but she was actually there that day. And uh, it was, it was quite a moment. I really thoroughly enjoyed that. And the letter I mean, I, I sent her a CD or I gave her a CD that day. I happened to have one with me and gave it to her. And a couple of weeks later, I got this very sweet letter from her and uh, telling me how she was listening to it at 5 a.m. as she's taking her bath and she's in the kitchen and she's doing she's listening to it through all of these things, you know, and and, and telling me what a promising career she thought that I had. It was it was a very sweet letter. And she was right on the money. <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun singing with her. I, I have to tell you this little story about Dolly. So as I'm there um, in the studio getting ready to do our harmony parts, Carl and I are sitting on the couch back behind Kent Wells, her producer. And Kent keeps trying to tell her this ending that he wanted her to do a special ending on the tag, you know, and like giving her these little trills and stuff, you know, that he wanted her to try something different. And so she tries it two or three different times. And of course, I'm I'm back here on the couch and I'm like, I'm humming it, you know, think like trying to do what he's telling her to do. And he thinks that he hears me do it. And he says, Alicia, go in there and show Dolly what I want her to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 I can't do that. That's Dolly. You know, I can't show her. I was like, no, I, I really don't have it. You know, so anyway, I go in there and she says, come on, come on in here, honey. She's. She says, you put these headphones on and get in this mic. And of course, she's standing three feet from me <laughs> the whole time I'm singing. And I try to do it. And I didn't get it on the first take. And she goes, she puts that hand on her hip and she goes, oh, hell, honey, you ain't no better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's my Dolly story. <laughs> uh, but she was so much fun. <laughs> We had a great time. Before we go any further, will you play another one for us? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Let me get uh, all geared up here. This one is um, one that uh, Paul Kraft and Cadillac Bob Holmes wrote. <clears throat> it's called Too Bad You're No Good.
We're sitting here thinking about you and me. It's a crying shame, cause it's plain to see. You make me love you so bad. You make me love you so bad. You make me love you so bad. Too bad you're no good. Smile like an angel. fun song it is fun yeah <laughs> so you, you touched on this earlier but uh, a person who's been really influential in your career since the beginning has been bluegrass and traditional country star carl jackson he's produced so much of your work and it, you know how did the two of you get together and what is it like working with carl what what is it about that connection that just works well um I first met Carl in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, probably 27 years ago. We figured this out uh, a few weeks ago, looking back at pictures. And uh, Miss Bertie Sullivan, who is a promoter in Hattiesburg, she called me up and told me that uh, Carl Jackson, Jerry Sally, Larry Cordell, and Jim Rushing were going to be doing a Songwriters in the Round there in Hattiesburg. And they were going to be staying at her house. And she wanted me to come over and meet those guys. And so we, I, I met them then and just stayed in contact with, uh, with Carl and, and Larry and Jerry. And um, soon after meeting them, I had the chance to make my first record. And the, uh, the man, Johnny Stringer, who uh, enabled that for me, he told me that I could pick whatever producer that I wanted. And, um, I chose Carl. I decided that I wanted to work with Carl. I knew what a great songwriter he was. I, I 
didn't, I wasn't real familiar with his producing at that time, you know, but uh, I, I knew how meticulous he was, you know, just from that weekend of hanging out with him in, in Hattiesburg. And uh, I, I wanted the chance to have great songs and I knew that he would open that door for me as well. So, you know, we started the first record and it went great, you know, and I'd, I'd heard all these, all the, I'd heard all these rumors, you know, about the Carl Jackson torture chamber, you know, and I was like, oh my gosh, it kind of scared me a little bit. You know, I was thinking, is he going to like, is he going to be mean to me in the studio? <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was not that way at all. I mean, we got along great. And, uh, and I actually asked him one time in the studio, I said, so what's all this talk about the torture chamber? Everybody says that you're so hard to work with in the, in the studio. And he says, well, that's coming from people who can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> he said, that's coming from people who, who can't stay on. He says, people I'm really hard on. He says, you have no problem with Alicia. So we get them just fine. <laughs> So, uh, I mean, you know what, we've been friends all these years and, you know, and he's also become a mentor to me, you know, and, and I look up to him and I respect his, uh, his wisdom, his talent, his craft, everything. And it's just a good, it's just a good match. You know, when we're in the studio, together, I, mean, I respect him, he respects me as an artist and it just works. You talk about him being meticulous. How does that mesh with your style uh, when you get into the studio? Um, I mean, I'm pretty meticulous too. So, um, you know, he's just, Carl just has a better ear for hearing things that I may not hear, you know, and of course that's what makes a great producer. You know, when, when I think that I may be singing something, uh, good because it's, it's on pitch or it's just, you know, um, it's just my style, but then, you know, he's so, he hears things where a, a note would go to like a minor, you know, uh, in a possible harmony situation, you know, or, or go to the seven chord or, you know, and just, uh, he just hears those kind of things that, and sometimes you, you sit there and you are like, I'm not going to like that. You know, I'm, when I sing it, I'm like, I'm not going to like that at all. But then he's like, just do it. And I think you'll believe in it once you do it. Once you hear it and I play it back to you, I think you'll love it. And he was usually always right. <laughs> so with the new album, you were produced by Keith Stegall's produced so much of Alan Jackson's music and Randy Travis and George Jones on up through Zach Brown Band and Darius Rucker. How did that pairing come about? And what's it been like working with him? Well, um, when the opportunity came about for me to record this fourth album and I uh, decided that having total creative choice, you know, not having uh, round of records, you know, to screen the music and tell me that I had to keep it all bluegrass related, you know, I, <clears throat> I've always wanted to do a country record. And so I decided I wanted a classic country record and and, you know, making that decision uh, at that point, I knew that I had to have a producer who was known for those kind of records, you know, and I 
I, I wrote down five different uh, producers and Keith's name was at the top and we contacted him first. And uh, Tony Stevens, my good buddy who works at the Grand Ole Opry, he actually uh, was able to get past the doorkeeper, the, the gatekeeper, we call her, uh, in, in Keith's office, you know, and he was able to call and schedule a meeting. And uh, we got the meeting with Keith and he had already listened to some of my music and uh, the rest is history. I mean, we, he said yes, that he would love to work with me and uh, also wanted to help me book some writing appointments because he knew that I was, you know, breaking into more songwriting, co-writing. And he worked all that out. And then the, the, the times in the studio, of course, the tracking day was intimidating enough uh, being with Brett Mason and Stuart Duncan and all those guys, you know, uh, I, I was pretty nervous that day, but, and then there's Keith Stigall and John Keltner <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm with all these guys, you know? Step. Yeah. And so, um, it, it, that, that day was scary enough, but then it came time to do vocals, you know, and I go into Keith's office to do vocals and, he, he made me feel right at home. You know, he always, um, it, you know, and I actually, I think I was so nervous the first few times that he kept calling me in there to the mixing board. And he was like, okay, what's going on? You know, why are you, you're not singing like you normally sing. I know you can sing, you know, you wouldn't have made it this far in here with me if you could not, if you were not a great singer. And, um, I was like, I don't know. I guess I'm just scared. So anyway, he actually made me uh, book a, book a doctor's appointment with a uh, with his vocal doctor to have her tell me that my vocal cords were okay because <clears throat> you hear this little frog in my throat. You know, I kept saying, I think I've done. I think I've damaged something. You know, I'm like, I just can't reach those notes like I normally do. And he made me go see his doctor. And after seeing her and she gave me a clean report, said that my my throat looked great. You know, I called him up and I said, well, she says I'm OK, you know, and he says, good. He said, I knew it. And the doctor knows it. He said, now you need to believe it. <laughs> He's like, get back in here in the studio and let's and, and let's do this. You know, and I expect you to sing your butt off. <laughs> so it was great. It, was, it really was. <laughs> So I go back to a 2015 uh, newspaper article I read uh, where you said that uh, you, your career was up in the air. You had no idea. And this is when you were still in Louisiana. If you're ever going to do anything again. And, uh, you know, a few years later, there you are uh, just uh, putting together one heck of a, an album with uh, a great producer and some of the best session players in the world. Yes. Thanks to my uh, my dear friend and sponsor, uh, Nathan Lyons, who believed in me enough to to say, hey, I, you need to be making music and um, I, I, I want I want to see a fourth record done on you and I'm here to help. So I, I owe it all to, to Nathan. So tell me about the old side of town. The track list has an incredible uh, list of songwriters on there, including one I'm really excited about. Uh, Larry Cordell teaming up uh, with my friend Aaron Enderlin. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love Cord 
has been a good friend of mine, you know, ever since I met him back in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um, I'm, I don't know Aaron uh, other than just she and I talking uh, through Facebook Messenger. And, you know, I mean, both of them are just such great writers, you know. I mean, it's no wonder that putting those two together uh, that they wouldn't come out with a song like I might have one too. It's a, it's a great song. I think it's, uh, it's one of my favorites and definitely Tom T's favorite. He, he had, he had the whole album before anybody else did. And he called me up and said, that song of Larry Cordell and Aaron Enderlin's that's, that's your hit. He said, if that ever hits country radio, your phone's going to start ringing. <laughs> Well, I, I know she's uh, she, she struggled with uh, Bobby Tomberlin and uh, uh, Jeannie Seeley on, on one for uh, Rhonda Vincent. So hopefully that can happen here, too, because I think that's that's awesome. That's a great pairing. It's, it is a great pairing. It's a great song. Who are some of the other songwriters that are on there? Well, I have uh, Cordell again with Kevin Denny. So the first song that we performed, uh, Tell Fort Worth I Said Hello, I wrote that with Kevin Denny and Larry Cordell. Uh, then there is Keith Stegall and Roger Murrah. Uh, we have a couple on there uh, that I wrote with both of those guys. And then there's Brian Mayer, James LeBlanc, Jen Stegall. Um, we wrote uh, Way Too Young for Wings, which is a personal story of, of mine. And uh, let's see, Paul Kraft and Cadillac Bob Holmes, which is the Too Badger No Good song. So, yeah, got some great writers on this record, no doubt. Well, Alicia, before we get out of here, I want to share with everyone the new single from the old side of town called They Don't Make Them Like My Daddy Anymore, which you co-wrote with Carl Jackson. Tell me about this song, which also has a great video. Well, uh, the video, of course, I wanted I wanted it to be very personal. And uh, because the song is about my dad, you know, I wanted to be able to include some old photos of uh, my life growing up you know, pictures of my dad playing bass and uh, pictures of him and mom getting married and, you know, just kind of some of the, the bullet points, you know, that are mentioned in the song. And I didn't want the, the whole video to be a complete slideshow, you know, so I called my, my good buddy, Glenn Schweitzer, who um, is the videographer for it and uh, asked him what his thoughts were sending the song and he called me back and he says, uh, he says, I'd like to, I'd like to do something that's kind of theatrical, you know, where, uh, he says, I know you want to include all these photos of your dad, but he said, if we have you in front of the camera, kind of like in a theatrical scene, um, you know, just singing the song and then you kind of going back to those memories. He said, I think that's, that's all the song needs. It doesn't need a whole lot of stuff, you know, and I love the way it turned out. Well, here it is. They don't make them like my daddy anymore on Fast Line Fast Track. Born in Pollock, Louisiana in 1945. He was just a teenage schoolboy when his papa up and died. So at 18, joined the army, served America with pride. Three years down the road, he took my mama for his bride. Raised me and my three brothers, and couldn't save a dime. Strangers to the high life, and well acquainted with hard times. 
guess love was all we needed Cause we never really felt like we were poor And I ain't afraid to say it They don't make them like my daddy High school education In the Bible he was versed No professor in the classroom But a deacon in the church Loved Jesus Sunday morning And his bluegrass Friday night and Made sense to play the upright That's the way he lived his life Though he rarely said I love you I could feel it loud and clear Every time he hugged me tightly His eyes would fill with tears Even after he was in makeup He only saw the little girl that he adored There's one thing for certain They don't make them like my daddy Such a beautiful and poignant song from Alicia Nugent. Thank you. It's very special to me. Thank you. Guessing that might not be the easiest one uh, on your set list to uh, to get through. No, it's not. Um, definitely, you know, I, I get choked up during that song at times. So it's a tough one to get past, but... It's so beautiful. I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, how long did it take from start to finish uh, to, to put this whole album together? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you would ask that question. We started it um, April 9th of 2019. Or was it 18? <laughs> 2019. And um, yeah, so we we actually had it finished um, probably by August or September. For, for the most part, it wasn't mixed and mastered, but you know, all of the 
the parts for the most part. I mean, except for like uh, adding Rob Ikes on Dobro, you know, for the bluegrass version of Daddy's Song, you know, uh, and bringing Stuart Duncan back in on mandolin. Uh, those those things were probably finished in February this year. So overall, from April last year to February, uh, I had to take a lot of time, um, you know, uh, taking care of my mom. My mom came to Nashville last August uh, with some health issues and she was in the hospital at Vanderbilt quite a bit. So, um, so the guys at the studio were handling everything pretty much, you know, after I got my vocals done. And so, yeah, it, it's been over a year. Now, do you have any of your girls back up with you in the Nashville area? I do. I have one, my middle child. Uh, so yeah, the, the nest was not empty for long. <laughs> they, they come back. They have a tendency to come back. So my, uh, my middle daughter Santana is here, uh, with her two year old. So uh, they're, they're living with me and, uh, life is good to have some family here in Nashville with me. I love it. How are things setting up for the future for you? Are you looking at doing some touring to support this album or uh, what does that look like at this point? Well, um, you know, we don't have anything set up right now because of the whole COVID thing, but uh, hoping if 2021 opens up, you know, and some of the venues are, are opening up as well, you know, hoping to get back out there and hoping to tour and promote this record. That's, that's what I hope to do. You took a 10 year hiatus. Is it like getting back on a bike? How was it uh, this time around it as not, opposed to the last it is, <laughs> it is not like getting back on a bike. Cause first of all, I'm 10 years older and uh, you know, if you don't, if you're not singing for, uh, for a long period of time, you know, those vocal cords, those muscles and everything are not being used for a long time. And even though I was singing in church quite a bit, um, I still wasn't singing as much, you know, so they just weren't getting the use and it's, it's hard to get back out there and perform a full show. If you're not used to singing, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, um, you know, so, so yeah, when I went to do, I went to Ireland last year, we did an Ireland tour and had 10 dates in a row. And I remember, the first couple of days uh, I would, I would get to like the fifth song and I could tell that my voice was kind of wearing out a little bit, you know, and it was that little frog was coming out. And uh, as Keith calls it, you know, he's like, go home, get rid of that frog. But um, by the 10th day, our final uh, show in Ireland, I was singing the best that I'd sung in years, you know? And uh, I remember telling Keith Stigall that, uh, I should have waited and done all of my vocals right after coming back from Ireland because it's like doing all that singing, you know, I got my vocal cords back in shape. So it's not like getting back on a bicycle. It does take a little bit of practice. <laughs> so now that you got this album out and it looks like you're, uh, you're back in business here. What, what are some of your goals? Do you have any kind of bucket list goals for the career or anything that you really want to accomplish uh, while the iron is still hot here? Well, certainly I want to uh, to make my uh, appearance on the Grand Ole Opry again for the 72nd time uh, and beyond, hopefully, you know, that uh, that would be a big one for me. Also, you know, I, I think every artist would be uh, 
fibbing a little bit, not telling the truth if they said that they wouldn't hope to win a Grammy at some point, you know, just or just to be nominated in the Grammys, you know, would be um, would be a huge thing for me. Uh, that's a great aspiration. And I, I hope that that would be nice. Well, you, you certainly have the goods to get it done. You've surrounded yourself with the people to get it done. So we, we certainly wish you the best of luck in that pursuit. Thank you. Appreciate that. What, what do you like to do away from music? Uh, well, I like to fish <laughs> when I have the chance to. I don't I don't I don't get to fish very much here um, here in Nashville. I just don't have I don't have the means, I guess. You know, back home in Louisiana, we were always uh, taking the boat out, going fishing on the lake, you know, but I haven't been able to do that very much here. So um I like to fish and I like to uh, paint old furniture. So I like to go and find old furniture at estate sales or uh, garage sales, you know, and give new life to them, uh, paint them up, you know, distress them, whatever, um, refinish, you know, that's, that's always a fun project for me. I like doing that stuff. Well, I tell you what, Alicia, uh, if folks want to know more about you, follow your music, download your music, uh, where can they go to check you out? Well, they can go to my website, which is alishanugent.com. And Alicia is spelled A-L-E-C-I-A. Uh, they can also follow me on Facebook or Instagram, Alicia Nugent Music. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much where they'll learn what they need to know about me. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. And congratulations again on an incredible new album. I hope everybody will go out and get it. And please come back again in the future to share new music with us. We love visiting with you. Thank you, Brent. And we want to say a special thank you to our musical sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. I hope that when you're in the Nashville area, you'll go and check them out. They have a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise. And if they don't have it, I know they'll find it for you. They have some new albums. Hour, so pay close attention. They'll be open Sunday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and Friday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. So when you're in the area, stop by and say hi and tell them you heard it on Fast Line Fast Track. I also want to say a special shout out to our friends at Farm Life and thank them for their support of Fast Line Fast Track. Please go over and give them a like on their Facebook page so you can connect with others interested in agriculture. And join me on their page every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern as I join Brandon Deal to talk about the things that are on farmers' minds. And speaking of things on farmers' minds, harvest season is here. If you have any last-minute needs for combines, heads, grain carts, grain dryers, trailers, or anything else, head on over to FastLine.com and check out our equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the iron average powered by iron solutions that's fastline.com and while you're on the website please be sure to sign up for the print catalog for your state or region no need to head into town to pick one up off the convenience store rack the fastline catalog is still being delivered directly to your mailbox and it's still a favorite resource of farmers and ranchers across our great country remember to subscribe to the fastline fast track podcast on apple podcasts Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, and add our Spotify playlist to your library for all the music from past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. Also, be sure to hit us up on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Well, it's time for us to get on out of here, so until next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back.
and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fastline Fast Track, presented by Fastline Media Group. To learn more about Fastline's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastlineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, Fastline.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at Fastline.com.